This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Helping patients age in place, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today I'm talking with Dan Weinreb from Jukebox Health about how providers and payers can collaborate to help patients age in place. But first, a big development around prior authorization. You'll hear more in a moment from Senior Editor Nick Hutt and Policy Director Sean Stack. This is Sean Stack, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, and I'm excited to tell you about our new bi-monthly webinar series designed specifically for hospital executives. HFMA will provide timely updates on the latest national healthcare reimbursement and revenue cycle regulations, policies, and trends. This series will equip you with the knowledge and insights you need to navigate the complex world of your healthcare business office. You can register now at hfma.org under webinars. Hey everybody, we're talking about a big regulatory development in the healthcare industry recently. And that's a final rule from CMS that on paper anyway, is a nice boost for providers with respect to prior authorization and the electronic exchange of health information. So uh, payers and federal programs most notably Medicare Advantage, but also state Medicare and CHIP programs and Medicaid Managed Care will have to respond to prior authorization requests within 72 hours for urgent requests and seven days for standard requests. And that'll be starting in 2026. Sean, there are also key provisions, as I alluded to, regarding the electronic exchange of health information. But why don't we talk about the prior authorization aspects first? What do you think about that part of the rule? Well, I think that it's a move in the right direction. I think many are still saying that the urgent requests are not timely enough. Imagine waiting three days on an urgent medical request prior authorization. But I do agree it is a step in the right direction. In addition, you know, there there is a lot more transparency in this rule to patients as well, not just providers and payers, payer-to-payer APIs, but also to patients. So they'll be more, hopefully, more involved in pushing back on any type of prior authorization request that they don't agree with and their clinician doesn't agree with. So I think that is a good step in the right direction. Another, you know, caveat to this rule is that it in no way includes pharmacy, which has been a little bit of a criticism on the department for not including pharmacy in that, but they are saying that they will be exploring that and that might come out in future rulemaking. So more to come on the pharmaceutical space to wrap that into this rule. 
but I think you covered it. It's Medicare Advantage plans, state Medicaid and CHIP health insurance plans, and then Medicaid managed care plans, and then qualified health plan exchanged on the federal exchange. So I didn't know if you covered the exchange as well. Yeah, you know, I was about to touch on that. that that's one part that maybe people think could have gone a little farther because, first of all, these requirements don't apply to commercial insurers because obviously CMS doesn't have regulatory authority over them. Right. But also, they chose not to apply the prior authorization parts of the rules to those health plans in the Affordable Care Act exchanges at a time when enrollment in those plans is well over 20 million for 2024. That represents a void. But they are subject to the electronic exchange requirements that we're going to be discussing in a second. Right. You know, we, we get reaction from different stakeholders in the provider realm, and they're certainly pleased, but they also think this rule could have gone further, just like you said. And indeed, even with respect to standard requests, they think maybe those could be turned around within three days. And like you said, urgent requests within a day or two, and that would not be unreasonable to hope for. So we'll see you know, how this new rule evolves as we go along over the next few years. So with that said, I actually think the provisions on the electronic exchange of health information may be the most significant part of the rule. Anything to do with prior authorization is at the top of providers' lists of concerns. But in the big picture, as far as modernizing the healthcare system, the technical upgrades that payers will have to make are substantial. And incidentally, this portion of the rule takes effect in 2027, so a year later than the parts about prior authorization. But um, these are consequential requirements. Would you agree? I do agree that this is a very heavy build, much like the advanced EOB build, things like that. There's a lot to be done here. So I do I do agree that pushing this and not doing this, rolling this out too early is, is probably a good move on the department's behalf. So specifically, payers that are covered by the rule will have to implement APIs, application programming interfaces, to facilitate the exchange of information with patients, in-network providers, and fellow payers. Patients will have much more immediate access to prior authorization decisions. Providers will have easier access to up-to-date claims and clinical information. And when a patient either has multiple insurers or switches insurers during a care episode, there will be much better transmittal of information between payers. Uh, that's all in theory anyway. We're just talking on paper here because we have to see how actual compliance with these regulations plays out and what hiccups may emerge over the next few years. But there's reason to think that this is going to take the industry further down the path of interoperability and coordinated care. Sean, anything to add before we kick it back over to Erica? Really, I agree with you, Nick. I think this is hopefully will move the industry forward. I think that CMS has done a nice job in thinking out this process, especially the payer to payer APIs, you know, having that a five year look back on that information exchange between payer to payer. And also looking at this from a time when healthcare is becoming more and more fragmented and we are seeing more duplicative services because of all the disruption in the market. You know, patients go to one provider, then may phase out of that provider and go to a next provider on their own will. This could eventually connect a lot of those dots for payers and for providers. I do agree with you. I think these are all good moves. And I think that there's some criticism out there that these APIs will not provide the providers with the cost sharing from the patient, but that's to come through the advanced EOB piece. So I think that CMS is playing it safe here and keeping these rules separate so there's clarity between the rules. And I think there'll be a lot more to come here in the next year on that front as well. 
Yeah, and that's something we're going to be watching with a great deal of interest. And very relevant point there about how a lot of these sets of regulations are going to tie together as time goes by. All right, well, that should do it for us. Thanks, Sean, and thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. We'll be back in a moment. The healthcare industry has been working on limiting fall risk for inpatients for years. But according to my guest today, providers, payers, and patients need to be more proactive in helping mitigate risks at home before an incident occurs. Dan Weinrieb is the head of strategic partnerships at Jukebox Health, and he says fall risk should be top of mind for everyone. The challenge with falls, um, a lot of times they go unreported. They go unreported for a number of reasons. Um, Sometimes uh, providers don't even include it in the claim. Sometimes they don't document it in their EMR when they're going through patient history and doing an annual wellness visit, uh, for instance. And in some cases, it might be much lower on the claim, so it doesn't even make it into the system from a health plan perspective. But the reality is, for people over the age of of 65, four out of five falls are due to home hazards. It's really difficult for any organization, whether it's a health plan or a community provider, right, like a PCP, to understand what's really going on in the home. And that's not just with home safety and accessibility, it's across all other environmental services and home issues like pest control and junk removal and deep cleaning, food insecurity, all of these SDOH and health equity needs. You know, providers make referrals to occupational therapy, you know, support all the time, right, to ancillary providers. When they ask a patient, and and my father was a physician and I've run this by him as well, when they ask a patient about whether or not, you know, they feel safe in their own home or if they have a fear of falling, providers are even hesitant to have that discussion because they have no real solution to recommend that patient and that family. So yes, they might document it. Um, They might document it without even asking that member. They can just see that the patient is frail and elderly and and is most likely gonna be at high risk of falls. And even if they're on medications that impact that, that the dizziness and, and their balance. So they don't have a solution to recommend and it's incumbent upon not only our communities, but also the health plans to offer solutions, whether it's through a product or a quality program or a care management intervention, give providers a recommendation and an actual program to refer those patients to that have been identified as a fall risk. And whether they've been identified just through observation and conversation, or they've been identified because they have a reported fall in their history, right? Those are very, uh, you know, key indicators of not only, you know, suffering a first fall, but suffering a second, third, and fourth. I want to ask you about what you said about falls going unreported. This, I think, relates to the next question that I have for you. But I'm I'm curious if an element of that also is the patient. Are patients reluctant to talk about those things? Definitely. I, I think of my own parents and, and my in-laws, there's a real fear uh, that goes along with revealing that your independence is dwindling. You know, we talk about, you know, all of these services, aging in place, uh, being able to support healthy, you know, safe aging in your own home. The challenge with that is it, it also adds another component of fear that 
someone that is of an advanced age and has multiple chronic conditions, you know, independence is being stripped away from them either by, you know, their families, their caregivers, their their partners and spouses, or or even the health plans. You know, of course, they're going to keep something like that secret. I, I recall my grandmother, you know, she was 98, lived to be 98, independent in her own home. She would fall and we would find out months after the fact because she was never going to tell my mom that she was falling at home because, hey, maybe that was a conversation that then led to maybe maybe grandma should be in a, in a different facility, right? Maybe grandma isn't you know capable of living on her own anymore, right? And I think there is a real fear factor. AARP did this study, nine out of 10 people over the age of 65 when polled, they want to age in their own homes. They want to live out their lives with grace and dignity in the homes that they've lived in for years and even watch their children grow up in, right? So, you know, revealing that your independence and your mobility and accessibility is in question. So a lot of people want to keep that a secret. When is the right time to start talking about those things? Because I, I have a feeling that they typically start after something has happened, which is too late. You're right. You're right. That is exactly uh, what's happening, right? So those conversations start to happen after someone has had a fall, right? Whether it was an injurious fall or something that just tripped them up, right? And got them a little fearful. You're right. It is too late. There are lots of indicators that providers and health plans can use as a trigger to initiate a discussion uh, that is more preventative in nature and proactive rather than reacting after someone has suffered a fall. We look at chronic conditions. There are certain chronic conditions that are directly tied to impacting a person's you know, overall you know, stability, their frailty, their, their gait, right? How they are uh, moving in the home, their independence. So the more we can partner with those providers and the health plans on focusing and targeting interventions, including just initiating a discussion about, are you afraid of falling in your home? Asking that question, right? Fear of falling is one of the top two or three indicators of, uh, is someone likely to suffer a fall, right? So just asking that question opens the door to a broader conversation. Yeah, you have to level set right at the beginning and align on your goals. Your goal is to keep them in their own homes as, as independent and with as much safety and accessibility as possible. You know, institutional settings and assisted living is a last resort. It should be a last resort. It's expensive, not only for the family, but, you know, it's expensive for health plans too. And then your entire care plan and disease management and condition management changes when you enter a facility like that. The whole you know, ecosystem of support and providers around you changes as well. So let's fix what we can first uh, and then talk about those things later on. How can providers engage caretakers or family members in conversations with their patients? You know, if you're looking at it from a contractual perspective, you can design programs and interventions with health plans and with providers that are based on value and based on risk and performance outcomes. So if you're paying uh, and sharing in the savings of a fall risk initiative with providers, 
you deploy a program and offer that solution to them to then ultimately have them refer and recommend the program to their patients that meet the criteria to be you know eligible for the intervention. So you can do it contractually. You can build programs and um, initiatives and interventions that are value-based and performance-based and then share in that savings when you're really impacting a reduction in cost, a reduction in falls, a reduction in utilization of ED and inpatient stay due to falls, right? So you can make a contractual, contractually, you know, obligation, right? And, and in a program. The other thing is really just to have a solution to refer them to. The physicians and the providers in the community, they don't know about all of these other home services, and it goes way beyond uh, home modifications. This goes into all avenues of SDOH and health equity. They don't know the services that are out there. They are trained to treat and manage and prevent chronic conditions, right? That's what they are there for. They're not, you know, home services providers. They're, we need to be right? We need to look holistically uh, because the home is is a key indicator of, of outcomes and, and overall health. So we have to give them the programs. Well, thank you so much for sharing these insights. I'm curious to see how the industry will respond in the coming years of seeing the population age. So Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Eric Grotto. Additional reporting by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, Andrew Donahue, and the HFMA editorial team. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content. Our President and CEO is Ann Jordan. Snow Day!